chilly. It's the first day of the year with ice, isn't it? Today? Yeah, proper serious freeze anyway. And we're sat outside in the science centre. Uh, outside. Yeah, we've got a lovely view. Of mist. Yes. <laughs> when this mist burns off, the sun's going to hit it. We'll have a lovely view of the entire garden. Yeah, and I've noticed loads of rainbows recently with all the funny rain. They've been cracking recently. Yeah, and one of the things for me, Ben, that's um, uh, this time of year, which I absolutely love every time uh, this time of year, is all the different fungi we get outside. Yes, it's fun and, season, isn't it? Yeah, and because we've had a very... Uh, this is like the first frost, so we're in late November. Uh, I think because the frost has been very late this year, we've actually had uh, a really good amount of our grassland fungi. And uh, I've been going out, having a look to see where we might be seeing uh, wax cap fungi around the, the estate. You know, we've got 568 acres here. And um, this year I've been seeing them way more than I've ever found before. It is a really odd one, very strange phenomena, and um, it's because I these are wax cap fungi and they uh, cannot tolerate any um, fertilizer. And we've got an organic working farm, so we haven't been putting fertilizer down for 20 years. So I've just been seeing them further and further afield as the years roll by, which is a really fascinating thing, which I think yeah. shows that by being organic farmers has been really good. I've also been finding uh, on the field this year, I got really excited. I'm like a little kid when I find them. There's, li there's red ones called um, crimson wax caps, and they, take, they can take decades to establish themselves into a field. And um, early this week, I went out with the conservation volunteers on Tuesday, and uh, we went looking for wax caps. We found them on this field called Kai Calc, Calc meaning it's probably lined in the past. Um, and it's a field where we normally put do much of our grazing. It's got really good fencing, so the uh, the farmers here have been putting in all the cattle and sheep, and they've been grazing it really heavily over the last 20 years or so. But last year, there's been less sheep. We've changed the uh, type of sheep that we have from clean sheep to balanced sheep, and that much less. So I think there's been a lot less trampling in this field, and maybe consequently, that's why I'm seeing all these mushrooms coming up because they haven't got all the thick soil, yeah. or the dense soil to try and push through. And it's been just been like a revelation, and uh, it's really lovely. It's such a shame it's COVIDy times because I would love to take loads of people out to have a look. It would be nice, but you know, there's, people can still come to the garden and see it for themselves. It's just a shame that it couldn't be sort of a guided walk or a talk or anything like that. Well, indeed, there is a blue route which is called the Parklands View route which uh, uh, visitors can do, and it's been really lovely going out there, seeing lots of visitors actually doing this walk. Uh, so if you do the blue route, you can actually, or the pop-up view route, you can actually see, keep an eye out for these fungi, because the, the red fungi, which are really my favourites, uh, they're actually on that, that very route. Fantastic. And I've seen a few in the past, you've shown me a few, and they are they're hard to miss. Once you, once you get your eye in, they are bright red. Really good. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and one little small area... This is a little bit geeky, just, uh, just bear with me. But there's one little small area. On, on, we, we have a field called Kai Wax Cap. And uh, on this uh, uh, field, in one little patch, I found a uh, uh, splendid wax cap, crimson wax cap, and scarlet wax cap. Think of those names. The splendid is very red. Yeah. The crimson is quite red, but fades a little bit. And the scarlet wax cap is quite spectacularly red. Oh, my God. And they're all really close together. Brilliant. And I don't often... This is quite unusual to see this. Yeah. So uh, for, so that's me for uh, autumn. What about you, Ben? What, what tickles you fancy in autumn? 
to be honest, it's the mornings this time of year. Coming yeah. out, when I was coming in today, all of the seed heads on the uh, wildflower meadows around the science block all had frost on them. It was just gorgeous. And the snow, um, the spider's webs all frosted up. It was absolutely lovely. Oh. It's one of my favourite times of year. There's a huge change going on right now. Yeah. See, so away from the sort of traditional green leaves and flowers, back to more structural elements. So start to see the beauty in the sort of tree structures and the branch structures of all the shrubs in the garden. There's still a few sort of instances of really nice autumn colour as well that you see knocking about, lots of reds and browns. It's, it's a lovely time of year. Well, I'm going to ask you something, because, um, uh, you know, I'm not a practical horticulturalist, you know. I've never tried to be or pretend to be. But, um, uh, we, part of our conservation volunteer work here is that we have people go out um, monitoring the... Um, the times of year that 15 of our trees here, 15 of our native trees, uh, produce leaves, produce uh, fruit, and fruit uh, produce seeds, and then they, when they drop this, their leaves. And they're just looking at all sorts of different things. And, um, and at the moment, the, the, this time of year, we've still got a few sort of lingering leaves on um, just a few of our trees. Uh, but it's really noticeable, I think, particularly around the whole of Commandership, is that a lot of our uh, hazel leaves, I'm seeing, have a lot of yellow left. Mm. So the, along the hedgerows, you see a lot of yellow. And someone was speculating the other day, and of course, this is what we do, we speculate, don't we? Yeah. And someone was speculating, oh, is that something to do with the, the hot spring that we had, that maybe the chemical release? Would you know about something? Um, I couldn't say if it was anything to do with the, the spring or the season. Um, some trees tend to hold on to their leaves better than others. Um, Hazel's one of them, it tends to hold on quite nicely. Um, sometimes throughout the entirety of the winter, yeah. which is quite nice. Um, but yeah, tr trees are interesting when they come to dropping leaves. If you look at, say, a stand of ash or anything like that, um, you'd expect them all to drop the leaves at the same time, but they don't. Some of them hold on for a few weeks longer, some of them come into leaf a few weeks earlier. Um, and it's it's nice to see, There's um, I was reading a book about a forester over in the Black Forest of Germany, and he said that each tree he, he works with and knows all have their own personality. Some of them are slightly adventurous and come out early and risk the early frosts and some of them are tenacious and want to hold on until the very last minute and risk the late frosts. It's, it's interesting to see um, whether it's anything to do with the seasonality I'm, I'm not so sure on that um, but it's yeah it's, it's nice to see the differences in all the trees and changes. Well the conservation volunteers were also uh, speculating about oak trees because uh, some of our oaks have all lost their leaves and some oak trees you see still have lots of their leaves on there and there was an anecdote about how somewhere in Swansea, uh, a streetlight, an oak tree next to a streetlight, had retained its le leaves on the streetlight side and had dropped them on the other side. Yeah. And I thought, what? I don't know what to think about that. Is, is that. It makes sense. If the tree's still getting use out of those leaves, it makes no sense for them to drop the leaves. Especially right. in towns and suburban areas, the temperature seems to be, or tends to be higher in those areas with the amount of tarmac in the area bouncing the radiation back off and trapping yeah. it. So trees will tend to hold on to their leaves more in an urban environment than they would in a rural environment. And if you put that tree right next to a light source, chances are it's going to hold on. It's, it's thinking, well, it's, it's warm enough and there's plenty of light. So yeah. from the tree's point of view, it makes no sense to drop them. And what about uh, beech trees? Because beech often keep, the beech hedges keep their leaves. Yes. Whereas the top of the canopy tends to lose the leaves. Is, do you know what's going on there? I suspect it's wind at that point sort of physical removal. Um, again, I'm not sure whether it's the plant itself keeping the leaves further down rather than up, closer up to the top, um, but my suspicion would be it's simply more exposed up there. Okay. So it would try to keep the leaves and then remove them. Okay. 
but yeah, it's, it's interesting how each tree is in its own different environment. So I'm from Amundford, uh, which is a lot lower down. It's near a river. It's a lot warmer. So going around Amundford, we're probably a good few weeks behind sort of the, the higher reaches. Uh, driving into here, we go out over the top of a hill, and it's completely barren up the top there at the moment. It's like the depths of winter. Yeah. It's amazing to see just the, the different changes in climate around just small changes. You, you wouldn't think they would affect the trees and the plants, but they do. They really do. They're, they're, they're perceptive to these sort of things. A couple of other, other volunteers, Angela and Nikki, have been um, looking at a great glass house. Yeah. And they came in the other day, so our, our volunteers, they come in on a Tuesday, and it was absolutely belting down. I mean, that sort of rain... You know, all rain gets you wet, but it's that rain that really gets you wet. So they they, <laughs> they went into the great glass house and they ended up counting the uh, number of uh, taxa in there, which are in flower. Yeah. And uh, they counted 69 different varieties of plants in flower. And uh, I, 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 we've had this in the past where we were kind of around Christmas time, we found about 90 different plants, uh, plant species in flower. And it just it blows my mind. But because uh, you've worked in the Great Glass House, haven't you? Yeah, I've done uh, six months in there during my apprenticeship. Yeah. So, um, can you can you try to explain to me, Ben? I, I can never quite work out in there because you've got plants from different regions of the world. You've got yes. things from the Southern Hemisphere uh, that are putting out flowers now. Some from the Southern Hemisphere are not. Are they all really confused, or, or are you horticulturally? planting them so that they come out they, there, there could be an element of confusion um, the thing with the great glass house is obviously everything's Mediterranean uh, in Mediterranean climates in the height of summer it's blisteringly hot and there's no water so for the majority of those plants they actually uh, don't really grow that much they, there's no point in putting soft flowers out that time of year because they're just going to get scorched quite quickly so they tend to do a lot of their growth in sort of springs and autumn um, the benefit of the great glass house is obviously it's, it's heated the entire year it's, it's constantly above freezing so these plants have got a huge growing season. Um, and I think it is just, they, they can do it. They, there's no danger to the plants to put the flowers out at that time of year. So they take the opportunity. It is purely, when you break it back down to a survival point of view, the more flowers they can produce, the more seed they can produce. So the, the greater chance there is there's going to be a second generation. So if you were to put them in an environment where during the summer it doesn't get, sometimes it does get to blistering hot temperatures in there, don't get me wrong, but it's it's normally watered quite well and what is watered quite well in there um, so sometimes in, in nature you'd see three four months with little to no rainfall but we're watering in the great glass house so it's it's slightly warped compared to how it would be in their natural environment meaning that they've got that little bit more flexibility so there's always something flowering in the great glass house yeah, onto it. I mean, one of my favourite—we had a photo taken the other day uh, around the uh, Protea, but there's also the um, what's the tall one, the uh, Brucia? What's the what's the big tall one in there? It's got a few tall ones. Uh, the the um, it's like red hot poker, but it's like um, oh, Nephophias. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's quite spectacular. I mean, yeah. that's South African, isn't it? So presumably, what? So that at the moment in South Africa, they're in the summertime. So yes. Um, Presumably, some of the plants in there still think we're in the southern hemisphere. Is that right? It could be. It's it's unlikely after this length of time. Um, it's probably they're just confused <laughs> at that point in time. Some, sometimes, if, if a new plant goes in, it might take a few years for them to swap around to the new schedule. Um, but again, the growing conditions in that environment just mean that they have the potential to put flowers out throughout most of the year. The light levels are never fantastically low in there. There's always some light. In the height of summer, there's obviously a lot more. 
but it's just that availability of temperature and water and feed, just the environment in its whole means that they can put flowers out when they do. And when you're uh, doing, uh, I mean, we've had Marilla uh, Burgess has been in charge of the Great Glass House for quite a long time now, um, and you would probably you would have worked with Marilla. Mm-hmm. Um, when she is ordering new plants, uh, where does she get them from? I'm not sure where she gets them from. Most of the plants in the Great Glass House come from the nursery glass houses, um, so they're nearly always propagated from material on site. There's a lot of conservation plants in there, so it's very hard to buy those in. Right. Um, and a lot of the plants in there are species-based. So we do get a lot of seeds coming in from the Millennium Seed Projects and seed swapping between botanic gardens. Um, but actually buying in mature plants, that's a, a relatively rare occasion. Uh, most of the time, the plants in there are propagated by Carl in the back houses, um, specifically for the great glass houses. Right, of course, because you, you can actually look in as a visitor, although you, you haven't got access into these nursery glass houses, you can actually have a look in from... From this, from the, uh, the public view site, can't you? Yeah, so if you're going up towards the Welsh Natives compound and the uh, British Whiteling collection, um, you can see into the glasshouses there. And there's there's um, sort of three glasshouses. There's the, the large one, the, the NG3, which is the Mediterranean plants. You've got NG2, which is sort of sometimes used for overwintering. There's also a lot of um, Mediterranean plants in there as well. And then NG1 is the tropical. It's quite hard to see into the NG1 because uh, there's a lot of shade netting because they don't like too much light. Okay. Um, but if you peek into NG3, there's hundreds of plants in there and you'll recognise those plants from the Great Glass House as well. Okay. And have you, uh, Ben, you personally, have you, um, you, you, you started here as an apprentice, didn't you? So yes. you, you've, you've done many years here now. Um, you you would be, probably had the pleasure of actually planting a seed and then seeing it mature. Over the two years, yeah, there's definitely some cuttings that I took in my first rotation in the nursery houses that I've seen go into the ground since I've been here. That's quite nice to see, Yeah. sort of the evolution from taking a piece of a plant to planting a new plant. That's really nice. There's a lot of plants in there that um, I've, I've looked after and they're now out in the Great Glass House. The Great Glass House is always changing. There's, there's always soil improvements going on there, so there's quite a big rotation between the NGs and the Glass House. It's quite nice to see. Is there only one plant that you particularly feel really fond about? Yeah, Furlica pubescens, um, commonly known as Mr. Fluffy, I think. Is oh, the, you did Fluffy! Yeah, uh, that's, it's quite um, a tricky one to propagate that, um, and we were having a lot of trouble with it. And just on a whim, I thought, I'll, I'll give it a go at air layering, which is a technique where it's um, you, you scar the bark on the plant and then wrap it in damp sphagnum, sphagnum moss. Really? So it's the branch is elevated, hence air layering. Yeah. And you, you basically leave it there, wrapped in tinfoil to keep it dark, and you just wait to see if the plant puts roots on um, and I did three on the back of the plant, just thinking it would be really nice to have another one. Because we've, I think we've got two in the Great Glass House at the moment, but it would be nice to have a bigger collection. Um, and one of them took, and I, I was really proud of that, and it's, it's still growing quite nicely. Um, wow. I, I was really chuffed with that, because I've always loved that plant. It's such an interesting plant. It's really soft. It is so soft. It's so soft. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, mean I, I've, I've seen, I, I walked past that plant many, many, probably several years, didn't notice it. But someone said, have a little feel like that one. And it looks like it's going to be not particularly interesting. It's yeah. so soft and fluffy. Because it's got those sort of grey hairs. You think, oh, it's just going to be another coarse-haired thing. You know, another yeah. Mediterranean plant. Sort of evolved not to be touched by animals. But actually, it is very soft. It's so satisfying. Am I right to say? I mean, I, I mean part of my job is writing uh, interpretation signs for such things. So, I, you know, I, I get an excuse to go uh, dig out some interesting stories. Of course, I sometimes I completely forget what I've, I've, I've 
research. But I seem to remember there's um, something to do with ants and their seeds, if I remember rightly. Maybe. I'm yeah. not sure on their seed dispersal. Uh, there's, there's something about that. I'll, maybe I'll, I'll check that out for another, <laughs> some other time. Yeah. But the, it, I, I love any plants which have this wonderful interaction that are kind of totally unguessed yes. until people have ob- ob- carefully observed them over many years. Yeah. And Because uh, I know there, there was a big thing about preserving the big, large blue butterfly in Cornwall. And, 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 and its interactions with the birds called Treffle and they realised there was something to do with ants moving the seeds around there. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cases, especially sort of in the tropics. Um, there's a podcast called In Defense of Plants. I can highly recommend you listen to it. It's, it's a slightly more in-depth dive into specific plant species. Uh, they did an episode on orchids quite a while ago. Um, I forget the name of the exact uh, species of orchid, but they were saying that there is a species of orchid that the ants are attracted to the seed coating. They bring yeah. it into the nest to feed on the seed coating. The orchid then grows on top of the ant's nest. Yeah. And that's its main system of dispersal, is enticing the ants to bring the seeds in, because um, it's an aerial plant, so it'll be in the aerial ants. Oh, I love it. Fantastic to hear about all of these interactions. Plants aren't standalone, they, they rely on absolutely everything else. Uh, a, a plant I absolutely love seeing about three or four years ago was in our tropical house, which has become Plas Pinipala, our butterfly house. Before we brought the butterflies in, we had the is it the ghost orchid that uh, Charles Darwin forecast was going to be uh, um, pollinated by a very long-tongued moth? Yes, it was. It was supposedly pollinated by a moth, wasn't it? Yeah, and you know the, the fact that I'd heard about this, I'd read about this years ago. Yeah. And then I go in the tropical house, and Carl has has, has created. He's got it in there, and I yeah. can see it. It's just like. Wow! Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's quite an interesting one, that, wasn't it? Because he'd never actually seen it being pollinated. He just assumed, um, looking at the structure of the flower and other flowers with similar structure, he said, well, there must be another species of moth that pollinates this one because the tongue length of yeah. the known moths is, is incorrect yeah. for this flower. Um, I think they have found that moth. They have found that yeah. moth, and I love that. That sort of predictive science. Yeah, it's... Uh, really fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a... It, real sharp minds to be able to look at that and go something's not quite right here, it's, there's something else going on. Yeah. Well, one of my little ambitions here Ben, and I, and I, I may never do it but the, um, we have thousands of butterfly, all greater butterfly orchids uh, in our meadows in the summer and um, they only smell at night and they have a vanilla smell and that is to, to attract nighttime moths and uh, I would love to be here at night and find and discover which moths are coming to our butterfly orchids. That'd be fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. because uh, there was a study done in Scotland. Uh, they discovered quite there's a few four or five, I think, different moths were actually doing the pollination up there. Uh, but again, it's one of those things unless you actually sit and watch, and you're with someone who actually understands what different moths are, yeah. which I don't know. Uh, I just think that'd be a really fascinating thing to do, and uh, I, th- I think nighttime observation is something I would really like yeah. to do a little bit more of because I was also up the day and we've built a new little bat house uh, on Wine Lass uh, for uh, uh, brown long-eared bats and pipistrelle bats to move to and uh, years and years ago we had a night here where we actually brought in all the bat monitors with all these sort of kind of like you have your little di- your dials on there to listen to the radio frequencies of the, of the different bats flying around here at night and it was magical because we had I think we had six different types of bat that night. Wow. My favourite's been the Dor Bentons, which sort of, 
bed, or bedroom bats, and they, they skim the lakes uh, 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 looking for insects on the top of the water. Wow. And whenever you hear them, you can almost hear them go, bee, bee, bee. and when they get, when they swoop right down, they go, Bew! it makes a sort of <laughs> particular noise. That's fantastic. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that, that was there, there was that many bats. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not a zoologist by any means. Nor I, but there's another one. I mean, it's great because in this game, you know, because being a botanic garden, we have lots of sort of expert people come here. Mm. They're kind of attracted to what we do, and, and we're really interested in the work that they do. So we're dead lucky. We have access to people who really know their stuff. So there's someone there at night, and uh, and this other sort of sound came in. It's a bit more of a boom, boom, boom. And I think it was a nocturnal bat. I mean, these are things you'd never know, it's yeah. ever. And the fact you stood there and you know this like bat you never ever thought you'd be close to again, just flying over your head. Yeah, oh, it's just amazing. most people they see a bat in the corner of their eye when they're driving down the country road and they go, "Oh, it's a bat." Absolutely. That's about as far as they take that thought process. Although I used to work down in the stable block um, offices, uh, the stable block, the big white building next to our restaurant, and um, we've got uh, pipistrelle bats in the eaves of the um, eaves. Is that the right word? Sort of in the sort of the top of the building. And uh, every year we have a count around uh, midsummer uh, to see how many of those actually emerge every uh, year. It's usually about 230 to 260 or something. Amazing amount. But every now and again, one of those bats would actually uh, emerge in our office during the day and sort of fly around uh, and, and scare, scare me to death, really. Because people, because I was like, um, you know, I do a lot of work with wildlife, people sort of expect me to know what to do. So I was a bit creeped out, really. It's a massive subject, wildlife. It is. It's, it's huge. <laughs> Just because you know you work with it and things like that doesn't mean you know, you know the specifics of this bat species. It's, it's remarkable. No, and uh, but you know, but I think that that's it's kind of what we do here as well. I mean, the, the ethos of what we do uh, as a botanic garden here is we're all about conservation, yeah. and uh, so uh, you know, obviously we believe not. We don't believe it's true that plants and fungi and the lower sort of um, flora yeah if you don't have a, a a healthy ecosystem of flora you don't get your it's healthy ecosystem of fauna it's the foundations that every ecosystem is built on yeah um, and because we've got such a diverse landscape here what with the nature reserves and the grazing meadows but also the display area we have such a, a huge amount of wildlife I mean there's hedgehogs all over the site a few weeks ago there was um we spotted a, um, a little brown weasel in the GTF garden. Did which, you? Yeah. Did you? We've been trying to survive for that. Yeah, we, that. we were, um, Adam and Araz um, and myself were recording for a video oh, in yeah, the garden. Oh, yeah, you've been doing growing future videos, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Adam's been doing quite a few for us. But we, we yeah. were recording for a joint one. And um, just at the corner of Adam's eye, he said, what's that? And we turned around and there's this little tiny weasel there. Must have only been five, six inches long. Tiny little thing. Gorgeous sort of chestnut brown colouring. And we just watch it, and it just sort of hops along the back wall, darts into a hole, picks up um, a rodent that it had stashed there for later feeding, and just hops off again back into the bush. And we were just sort of standing there stunned. Uh, annoyingly, we had a video camera, and neither of us thought to point the video camera at the weasel. We were just standing there going, this is amazing, and never actually thought, let's get this on camera. But wow. there is a resident weasel in the GTF garden. That is really, uh, really excited about that. We, uh, one of our conservation volunteers, John, uh, he's a Mr. Gadget sort of fella, and he actually created a mustelid uh, uh, box two or three years ago to try and monitor 
what type of because mustelid is the name of yeah. weasels and stoats and polecats, all of which we've had here before, to try and, and monitor uh, what came on. You look at the footprints, uh, and only half worked really, but uh, I, I love the fact you gave it yeah. a go. But um, but you know you can't beat just actually seeing things. No, it's uh, it was lovely to see. Fortunately, I'm doubting whether it was a weasel. Now it's the small chestnut brown. Well, you know the difference between a, 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 a weasel and a stoat. Can't say I do actually. Weasels are easily recognised. Stoats are certainly different. It's probably a weasel then, because <laughs> Adam and I both looked at it and went, "Is that a weasel?" <laughs> so yeah, it's probably a weasel. Yeah, weasels are smaller ones. They kind of bend the bodies as they. Yeah, can. definitely a weasel then. Um, but yeah, it was it was lovely to see, and there's there's all sorts of stuff going on uh, wildlife wise. There's in the double wall garden when I was working there. There's a resident um, blackbird and robin, and they're both tame. They're absolutely fantastic. When you're weeding, you put your weeds in the bucket and you look there and there's a robin sitting on the corner of the bucket. Darts in, picks up a grub that's come in with the weeds and darts off again. And they'll, they'll literally be within an arm's reach of you while you're weeding, just standing there. Because they know we're not going to hurt them. So they've just tamed themselves. It's absolutely fantastic to see. Have you ever seen... We uh, we were given a uh, albino hedgehog here a couple of years ago. Yeah, I can remember that. Uh, someone had had it in their back garden... Uh, but they lived on a busy main road and they didn't want it to die. Yeah. So they brought it here and, and uh, someone called it Sonic. Yeah. They made a good Welsh name, Sonic, Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. And we released it into the double wall garden. Mm. I mean, it could well be very, very healthy. It's just that you te- they tend to come out at night yeah, so you might just never see them. Very hard to see hedgehogs nowadays. I haven't seen the albino hedgehog. There's, I have seen a few more. Um, it depends whether the hedgehog itself is male or female. Because the, the males tend to roam, the females tend to have territories that they stay within. I didn't check. Yeah, I don't okay. think any of us knew how to check. It was spiky, <laughs> spiky and in a yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I haven't seen it, I haven't heard from it, um, which is probably a good thing. Okay. Um, if you don't hear from an animal, it's probably fine. If you do see it or hear it, something's probably wrong. I chatted to uh, Daryl Little, our gardener on, on the Broadwall uh, years ago, and she was saying how the hedgehogs... Uh, kind of overwinter in your big sort of bushy grasses. Yeah. Uh, that that sort of dotted around the Broadwalk and probably on the slate beds. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of every year, you undoubtedly when um, the Broadwalk team are cutting back the grasses, they'll find a hedgehog in in the middle of them because they're so sheltered. The pampas grasses and things like that are very hard to put your hand in without getting cuts and things like that. So it's a very safe environment for them. Right, okay. So they're thinking they've done an absolutely cracking job until we come along and cut the house down. <laughs> um, but they, they all get moved quite safely. There's um, a lot of you know, very good habitat for hedgehogs on site. So as soon as they get seen, they get moved down to those areas. Right, okay. And, and I, I remember at the time thinking, because I was, I, was, I was looking at uh, grasses here, I was very interested. And, and I, uh, I went and looked at all the different grasses that are on uh, what we used to call the slate beds, and still, I suppose we do still call the yeah. slate beds, sort of the bits next to one of our lakes, Lake Ikav. And um, I remember looking at those grasses from the, the other side of the lake, looking across at this time of year, thinking that would make a really great winter garden. Yeah. And uh, because it, in November and December, this is when probably we have our lowest points of visitors during the year, I think. But, yeah, most but, likely, just mainly because of the weather, I imagine. Maybe so, but also your perspective, there's not much to see, but I'll tell you what, I'm finding absolutely loads at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it's probably handy that I work here and I wander around and I get to know from you guys what is interesting, really. Um, uh, but I, I, it, 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 it is, obviously, and this point will come up over and over again, there's so much to see all the time. Yeah, it's a 
as you say, a lot of people have a stigma that during the winter months gardens don't have much going on. Um, they do, it's just different. Uh, so you've, obviously you've got the evergreens, um, they're still in full force, and they're actually emphasised this time of year, they're the only thing still left in leaf. Um, there's some lovely variegated hollies on site. You've also got things like uh, decorative barks, so Acegrisium, which is a tree that's quite common up the Broadwalk. That's got very nice, deep, sort of browny red peeling bark. That's on full show right now. Yeah. What's and the one it, that smells nice, by the way? One smells of candy floss. What's that one? Oh, testing me now. Okay. And I, I know the one you mean. I've forgotten the name of it. I'll find out for next week. Okay. <laughs> that, yeah, that's um, when the leaves drop. They smell of candy floss when you're yeah. walking in. But yeah, there's there's a lot of things to see now. Grasses obviously are still in full force, and when the wind blows, and the, the movement of the grasses in the garden is, is beautiful. Uh, there's obviously cornice as well, which is a, a classic. It's one of my favourite shrubs. Just uh, the, the bright, sort of varied colours you can find on the stems of those plants is great. Yeah. And they're at full force now. They're emphasised. It's you're seeing the skeleton of the garden now, um, and that's what sort of is really good about this garden. Is the skeleton is interesting. I've got to say though, with all this ice that's in here today, uh, I've, I've got a slight worry that my fungi pursuits might be sort of drawing to a seasonal close. It, the ends, it? it does. It kind of like um, the hardens the ground, makes them harder to come out, kind of rots, uh, sort of. Yeah, they start to turn to a little bit water jelly. And, um, but that's that's the beauty of nature. You've got to take advantage whenever you can. But yeah. hopefully there's still be a few lingers. I'm calling this winter now. I think yes. things beyond I think this is the first serious frost we've had. I think it's it's time to say we're, we're starting to come out of autumn now. Most of the trees have dropped their leaves. It's heading into winter, which is it's lovely. I do love winter. It's coming in and seeing all the frost on everything. It, it's it's magical. It really is. You've just got to train your eyes to look at different things. You're not looking for colours anymore. You're looking for shapes. It is nice to see. Really nice to see. Yeah, I, I did. Um, um, Another volunteer here, Mike Danford, did an exhibition in our Borough Art Gallery about three years ago on seed heads. Uh, and, uh, well, I say seed heads, or dead plant heads, really, yeah. which we're coming to see. And um, it was a fantastic exhibition of how plants gradually sort of decline. But even with the way they decline, even the way they then disperse their seed, it's still an evolutionary sort of morphological thing that's going on there. And... Uh, it's been a really popular it was a really popular show yeah. great to see they're, they're a great identifying feature seed heads because um, you can very easily see you know, how many pouches are there how many flowers are on this stem things like that just because there's no confusion with leaves there's nothing in the way and they are decorative as well rose hips spring to mind they are a gorgeous little burst of red flying up a rose vine a yeah. rose bush it's, it's lovely to see um, it's just not very many people consider that as, as a winter element really uh, when they're going through a garden this time of year they tend to sort of look at the trees look at the you know nice open plains with the frost but they never actually look at the, the seed heads left around and the, the different structures within the plants and things like that it's, it's a brilliant time to see it because there's nothing hiding in view yeah. you can see the bare bone structure of everything okay. and there's been a few potters I think as well and other artists have come on looking for seed heads and things like that to imprint into clays and take the pressings off and things like that. And yes, I, yeah, that's right, yeah, because they have a very strong structure, don't they? Yeah. 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 It's, it's lovely to see. But yeah, it's definitely winter, definitely winter. Well, thank you for tuning in this week. Um, I'll find out about the, the beach trees. I'll ask Tom, who's head of the uh, estates team here, sort of our tree expert, whether 
tree expert, but he's the head. I'll ask him about the, the beech trees and why they drop the leaves on the top and not the bottom. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. But yeah, hopefully you'll join us in next week and you've enjoyed this week. Thank you very much for listening. Have a nice week.